Okay. Hello, everybody. I know that there are some, a lot of people here, I think are in the, in the chat here are anxious to talk about new Cooper suspects. It seems like, you know, we can have discussions about the flight path and Tina Barr, metallurgy, tie particles, but it seems like that people like suspects. That just seems to be what generates the most pub, I guess, is suspect talk. People like suspects. I mean, that is the ultimate name of the game here is who was this dude? I'm going to have an author on who's got a new book out about this suspect. And he came to me and I was the first person. I was very honored um, to be the first person to read this book of his. I've got to say, he's got a really good guy here. I mean, he's not arguing that he is D.B. Cooper. He's not, you know, gritering it and saying that he is definitely this guy or that. Um, he's just throwing it out there. You know, you just that's kind of what you do is you throw it out there and let the vortex chew it up and spit it out. He gave it to me. And when I plugged when I read the book, I plugged him into a matrix that I've got. I have a, I have a mathematical formula that I use uh, to kind of rank suspects. And this suspect actually has the highest score ever. So, I mean, that's that's saying something. I mean, uh, the previous guy, uh, I believe it was Braden who had the previous high score. So I plugged him in and he's actually better than Braden. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to like about him. Okay, so here we go. So uh, I'm going to bring him on. Uh, some of you know this guy, and maybe it's going to be a surprise when you see that he has written a book. But uh, it is our friend uh, Packer Jack, John Limbach. Hey, Ryan. How are you, man? I'm wonderful, John. How are you this evening? I am feeling blessed and with gratitude first to you personally for your help as I went through this journey and your legal expertise, your man Photoshop skills. Uh, the fact that uh, you were able to confirm stuff for me and really you, Chris Brewer and, and Nikki Broughton, who were working on Milton Bordal, and I was working kind of with you guys behind the scenes on that. And this guy was just a lark, you know, a guy with the name that I had come up through the Forest Fen community. And the strange thing is, the more I kept looking into him, the more box, the more boxes were checked. And then amazingly, when we got those military records that, you know, I got at the end of January, and along with the fact that he had a student pilot certificate, you said to me, hey, John, he is now at the top of my matrix. And I'm thinking, this is Ryan Burns, the guy that we all look to now as not just an Oxford uh, educated criminal defense attorney, but really a guy at Cambridge. Yeah, Cambridge. Sorry. Oh, uh oh, there's the I, I hope we don't have to have a row off at CooperCon <laughs> and by <laughs> Tina Barr uh, because Cambridge. of that. It's like a crew contest. But go ahead. Sorry. But uh, Cambridge educated. And, you know, people look to you now kind of as the this, the uh, we talked about the ADBC of Bruce Smith and what he's done and the book that you're working on that I know we won't spend a lot of time talking about tonight. But I'm really excited about what you're working on with Larry Carr supporting you as the FBI agent who handled the case from 2007 to 2010. And, you know, you're really doing like a canonical book of, of what's happening. And so I think people look to you as. Uh, a preeminent expert, a guy who's looked at all the 302s and looks at them right away as they come out. And uh, so I was just shocked when you're like, yeah, your guy's now at the top of my list. I was like, this is crazy. And so the book, I got it here and you can see it's kind of thick. This is what you do to your friends if you're mean. You write a book that's over 250 pages and you make them read it. Uh, it. But it's really uh, 267 pages with over 80 uh, images in it. So it's got images of uh, this man who's the suspect, of, I call him a person of interest, but the Cooper community calls them suspects. Um, 80 images of him, 
There's FBI documents, CIA documents, Department of Justice files, military records, and a bunch of other evidence that's in this book. And again, um, the book really morphed and changed when I got in touch with what we call in the community a family member. And to me, he was like the Goldilocks uh, family member. If you got lucky enough to get in touch with any family member who wanted to participate in an investigation of a D.B. Cooper of interest, this would be the guy you'd want. He actually lived with this, with this person of interest through the 1960s, through the Kennedy assassination. And his mom was the second wife of this, this person of interest that we're going to talk about, whose name is Warren Eugene Hall Sr. It's also known as Skip Hall. A bunch of other names. Lorenzo Pesillo, he passed himself off as being Cuban, Latin appearance. We'll talk about that, Ryan. Mm -hmm. But um, the gentleman that I've worked with, who's now 80 years old, was 19 years old at the time of the Kennedy assassination, living with Skip Hall. And when I say Skip, living with, I use the term loosely because Hall was gone all the time, traveling all over, doing who knows what. And this man who's now 80, and he's a pilot. He has over 15,000 flight hours. Um, he actually injured his knee jumping at Lake Elsinore Jump Center, the Elsinore Jump Center, if you can believe that, when he was a young man. Uh, and there's other people associated with Hall and Lake Elsinore. And, uh, we can get to that as well, too. Uh, but in 2021, and I'll make this as brief as I can, Ryan, just so we can get on to talking sure. about Cooper. Uh, there was an article in the Tampa Bay Times, and you can find it right now if you do a Google search for Hall JFK. Pappas on the Tampa Bay Times, and it'll be the first thing that comes up. And this man who's now going to be 80 years old this year and his older brother, who was the middle of the three brothers, did an article with Paul Tash, who's the chairman of the Tampa Bay Times at the time. Paul wrote this op-ed, and they were frustrated after the assassination release records that Clinton approved hadn't been completed yet. It went through the Trump administration and is still going on to the Biden administration, where there's about 15,000 documents from the JFK case that haven't been released. And these guys wanted to start to get their story out. Part of the amazing story is that this person of interest came home after the assassination and handed John Pappas, the youngest of the three boys who live with them, a Carcano rifle, uh, which is the same type of Italian carbine rifle made at the same armory that's the alleged rifle that Lee Harvey Oswald used. And so that's part of the story that was in the Tampa Bay Times. I had been looking into this guy as a D.B. Cooper suspect so I know a lot of people might be skeptical. We have people that are talking about D.B. Cooper being the Zodiac killer or D.B. Right. Cooper being the Unabomber. And I would say touche if you think I'm being a sensationalist, but I would say read the book if you can. Um, listen to what we'll talk about tonight. And before you think we're writing, a, I wrote a sensational book trying to tie someone with the JFK assassination who might be D.B. Cooper. Uh, I think it'll make more sense to you uh, after we digest as a community all this information to Ryan's point of, him having the most check boxes on the uh, your Cooper spectrum, I guess you'd call it. Right. Yeah. So I asked two questions in the book, and we're not going to talk about the JFK stuff tonight because that's a whole rabbit hole to go down of, you know, the question that I asked the, the the readers. The first question is specifically with the evidence that I compile uh, and that Ryan has looked at. Uh, should Lauren Eugene Hall Sr. be considered a person of interest in the DB Cooper case? And as you said in your intro, I am not out. Uh, doing one of those P.T. Barnum beat the drum that this guy is D.B. Cooper. I don't know if he's D.B. Cooper. I know that there's a lot of evidence there, and I kind of go to the school of Larry Carr that there's a lot of people that meet criteria, but can you put them at PDX? Can you put them on the plane? Is there any physical evidence, DNA match? 
Mm -hmm. Is there any $20 bills? Is there anything else that, that would tie someone directly that, that I would then call a suspect? So that's why I call them persons of interest. But before you meet that bar, when I hear about people like Walter Recca or other suspects, and then I see Lauren Hall, I felt compelled to bring this information out as I continue to research it. Because in my opinion, I think Hall is a incredibly legitimate person yes. to look into for the db cooper hijacking yeah. like 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 no joke like not like parlor game naming db cooper suspects right he's he's legitimately possible a possibility like no no bs i, I right. think so yeah so the second question is and we'll let this go for the rest of the evening and we can do another show or i'll be on other shows but uh <laughs> excuse me and i'm just getting over a cold so i apologize to everybody but um in regards to the JFK assassination, Skip Hall was looked into. He was uh, looked into the day after the Kennedy Association, the FBI was looking for him. He was questioned by Warren uh, Commission investigators uh, in 1963 and 1964. Um, he was subpoenaed by Jim Garrison, and if that name doesn't sound familiar, the movie Oliver Stone's famous movie JFK in 1991, Kevin Costner, portrayed Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison subpoenaed Laura Eugene Hall to come from California to New Orleans to testify. Hall beat that subpoena, didn't have to go, but then later willingly went to New Orleans to testify. There's an interesting picture that might have a clip on tie that we'll show later uh, from that uh, time that he was actually being interviewed by Jim Garrison. We literally have him wearing a black clip on tie with a white clasp that goes over the collar. So that's pretty amazing. Um, and as a side note, Ryan, we have voice evidence of him with a low yes. voice. We have video that we're going to show tonight. Yep. He's he's another Goldilocks person of interest who's the gift that keeps on getting with photos of him smoking, smoking with his left hand, drinking with his left and right hand. Um, you guys will see a lot of it tonight. And of course, we're not going to read a 267-page book and show 80 photos tonight. So that's my generous plug to go out and buy the book. Um, but at the same time, the question that I ask is, I go through his alibi for November 22nd, 1963, where he says he was at home in California. I go in an outline format in a chapter called Bye Bye JFK Alibi, because I talk about Bye Bye Miss American Pie earlier in the book. And I, I go unit by unit with evidence, with documentation, with testimony to prove that his alibi was incorrect. And then there are three sworn testimonies to Congress, to the FBI. There are affidavits of individuals that uh, state that he was in Dallas, Texas, and now we have the youngest son of his second wife, who not only believes he was in Dallas that day, knows where he was, knows where his brother was uh, in, a, in that anthropology lecture hall uh, when the professor got a note uh, and came in and said, I hate to tell you guys this, but President Kennedy has just been shot and killed. And uh, John's older brother, James, who's now 82, but was a sophomore at that time at UCLA, the first thought he had is, oh, hell, where's Skip? And that's the genesis of the name of the book, Where Skip. That second part is asking, where was he on November 22nd, 1963? I'm asking the question with you guys, where was he on November 24th, 1971? And I yep. think it's it's a heck of an interesting uh, story. This guy lived more lives in his 65 years on the planet, growing up in little Newton, Kansas, where at nine years of age, they built a new elementary school that happened to be called the Cooper Elementary School, believe it or not in Newton, Kansas. Uh, he tried to sneak into the army at the age of 15. At the age of 16, I put those documents where they're marked under age. He got in when he was 17. He got discharged within a year for having an epileptic seizure. 
He went into the Kansas State National Guard, somehow got back into the Army in 1949, and then went, went to Fort Knox, where they make a lot of bourbon right by Fort Knox, by the way, and then off to Oberammergau, Germany, where he was in the United States European Counterintelligence School, became a military policeman, did provost marshal investigation training, and in a way was rendition where he talks to Congress about being shown of slides of communist leaders and them talking about how they might have to kill these leaders at some point. So some really crazy stuff there. Uh, comes back, oh, he actually meets his first wife who is a English figure skater in the ice capades. She's a professional ice skater and they meet in Germany while he's over there. Uh, he's doing plain clothes worth protecting the border between Belgium and Germany. We're not gonna bring up the DB, uh, the Dan Cooper comics yet, but, um, and uh, they move back to the United States, eventually have four kids. He is stationed in Omaha, Nebraska, working for the Iowa National Guard across the river in Iowa. And then in, in 1957, he has a nervous breakdown and spends two months in a veterans hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, getting treated with Thorazine, which is a form of amphetamines. And we'll talk more about amphetamines throughout his life. Um, and uh, gets out of uh, the hospital, obviously, but can't hold down a job and is gone all the time. So his first wife said, enough, I've had enough of you. She files for divorce. They're divorced at the end of 1958. He tells his parents, mom, dad, I've got a friend who has a job down in Miami for me. He takes off from Miami. That friend happened to be the brother of Santo Traficante Jr. There was a casino in Omaha that uh, Lauren Hall got his first taste of the casino business. He was not a gambler, but he loved the casino business. He loved action, obviously. And he went from Florida to Cuba, and he went to become a freedom fighter with Castro in the mountains of Cuba as a guerrilla warfare and trained teams in Cuba, which included uh, swimming, <laughs> which included forests and included parachuting as well, too. And we'll talk more about that. Um, once Castro kind of does a 180 on all these guys and goes, well, I'm going to go with Khrushchev and communism full out. These guys are really upset about it. Lauren Hall, other people that you hear about work with the Cuban exiles in Alpha 66. They're constantly planning on ways to assassinate or take out Castro. Um, this leads into Operation 40, Operation Northwoods, Operation Mongoose. They're CIA jackals. They uh, uh, have a group called Interpen that we can talk more about, Ryan, with the parachute yeah. requirements to be an Interpen. And uh, Hall is doing this now uh, after he gets back, but he goes back to Wichita, meets a woman who's seven years older than him. She's 37. He's 30. She has three grown sons. I've mentioned two of them earlier already. And she happens to be the executive assistant to the plant manager of Cessna Airlines. She also goes through their program in 1958 to become a pilot. And she becomes a pilot and in 1959 represents Cessna in a woman's sky derby, comes in 10th place in a sky derby of all places, Dallas, Texas, which is crazy because the, the JFK stuff. But uh, she becomes a pilot. I believe that's how they met when one of the requirements for Interpen was that you had to at least get a basic pilot's license. So I think that's when Hall uh, went to flight school and did that. Um, and then they moved to California, East LA, uh, one hour from the Elsinore Jump Center. He was very involved in the John Birch Society, which is a right-wing organization. Uh, they were anti-communist, anti-Kennedy because of the change of policies after Eisenhower to Kennedy. 
and he would collect money giving speeches, but he would give speeches not as Lauren Eugene Hall. He would give speeches as Cuban freedom fighter Lorenzo Pasillo. Yes. We can look at photos of that later. And, and uh, uh, he goes on to traverse the country between um, Florida, uh, New Orleans, Dallas, and California, traveling, raising money, and taking arms for missions to try to topple Cuba, working with Cuban exiles. Take a step back to the lead, him being back in Cuba. When he, while he's still in Castro's army after Batista is deposed, he starts to plot with a group to go down and take out the communists in Nicaragua. He's then arrested because Castro believes he works for the FBI. And he, and this is him before, uh, probably in Germany or right before Germany, uh, or probably around 20 years of age when he looks more like the Bing sketch. Uh, Very, very young man there at the time. Um, Great, great photo of him. this is the photo that they put up when they reported that he had been imprisoned by Castro in Cuba. But what you find out in the book is it really wasn't a prison. It was kind of like a camp. And he lived in a Quonset hut, which is like a barracks. And who did he live with? He was in a Quonset hut with seven men that included Santo Traficante Jr. Because he also worked at the Capri Casino. Santo Traficante Jr., a major mafia figure, uh, Florida casinos, and uh, the casinos were taken away from him in Cuba by uh, Castro. And there is proof in this book, and it's not from me, it's from FBI reports of a British journalist who also was in that Quonset hut with them, that they were visited multiple times by a guy named Jack Ruby. So if that name sounds familiar, this just gets weirder and weirder. Uh, again, 267 pages of a book. But at the end of the day, he's back in California after the Kennedy assassination. They buy a hotel in Kernville, California, which is actually east of Bakersfield, he and his wife. It's destroyed in a flood in 1966. He is actually allowed to do the demolition on it because he's a demolitions expert. He became a demolitions expert in the army while he was in Germany. So he worked with explosives. He actually set the charges to remove the debris by the Kernville Bridge so that they could uh, rebuild the bridge there. Um, This is that picture of him uh, probably at the time that he, in 1968, when he's with uh, Jim Garrison. He's got a microphone on his clip-on tie. And Ryan, you and I have examined that uh, that photo, which is a newspaper photo. We cannot find the original. But uh, in the book, you'll see a close-up of that tie. And that is actually a white clasp that goes over the collar for a clip-on tie. That is 1968. And as our good Mm -hmm. friend Eric Euless has let us know that tie that D.B. Cooper left on the plane, if in fact it was Cooper's, which we believe it was, yeah. uh, was was manufactured and released by J.C. Penney in 1964 and 1965. It was known as a server or bartender's tie. Lauren Hall was a bartender at a place called Duffy's in Kernville at night mm-hmm. uh, while, after the motel got uh, washed away in 1966. He was also back in L.A. all the time. Again, one hour away from the Elsinore Jump Center. And then we get into his family, Ryan, and even John Pappas, who's the 80-year-old man who lived with him when he was 19, did not know that Lauren Hall had one sibling, a sister. Her name was Joanne. She was three years younger than him. She grew up in Newton, got married, had some boys, uh, got divorced, married a man who was Mormon just outside of Seattle, Washington, in a county called Sonomish County. Mm. And... uh, John Pappas didn't even know he had a sister, but his sister uh, uh, met this man, Raymond Ramsey. Raymond Ramsey left his first wife for her. So she was obviously in 
the Seattle area uh, around prior to the hijacking is basically what it is. If you look at the evidence, they did end up getting married in 1972, but he was not divorced until I think October of 1971. And um, very interesting that Skip had family member there. And then I'm going to stop filibustering you so you can ask me some questions. But um, the big thing is when I got those military discharge papers from John Pappas just a month ago, you guys, on uh, January 24th, when he was discharged from the Army, that document, and it's in the book, says separation point for Fort Lewis WN, which is Fort Lewis, now yeah. Joint Base Lewis McCord, McCord. in Washington. Yeah. So Lauren Hall, in his time at the Army, flew into Tacoma, Washington, and flew out of Tacoma, Washington to get back home after his yeah. discharge. He had a sister who lived in Seattle. Um, so again, you start piecing all this together, and I'm in no way, shape, or form pointing at the camera saying, I found D.B. Cooper. I have no idea if he's D.B. Cooper, but it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, after, after the, in 1975, the Zapruder film comes out, the country goes crazy because they see this film of John F. Kennedy getting killed in his, the tragic video of his head uh, coming apart. And the country demands an explanation because it doesn't really match up to the Warren report. Well, in 1975, a newspaper called the National Tabler splashes Lauren Hall's face, and it's now defunct. It's like the National Choir, splashes his face on the cover with other people saying the men who killed President Kennedy. Uh, and uh, Hall is um, uh, upset, obviously, that his, his face is out on the paper again, especially if he was D.B. Cooper. You can imagine you don't want your, paper, your face in the, in the newspaper. <laughs> That's when uh, Ann Pappas Hall, John's mom, divorces him right at that time, right at the time that this is all coming out. And um, he then two years later has to testify for two days in front of the House Select Committee on Assassinations after thinking this was all behind him in 1968 with Jim Garrison right. and potentially being D.B. Cooper. We don't know, but he is put back in the white hot spotlight of fame or infamy. Yeah. Uh, through th until that House Assassin Select Committee on Assassinations report comes out uh, in 1979. So then in 1985, Brian, through 1987, in 1989, a methamphetamine ring is busted. Three of his adult children from his first marriage are arrested as part of federal charges. And Lauren Eugene Hall Sr. is the cook and ringleader of a methamphetamine ring in, in the southern U.S. during the Iran-Contra time, it's like right out of Breaking Bad. In fact, I call the chapter Breaking Badly. Yeah. So and then our friend Chris Brewer is, the Brewer is the first one to find the death notice in the Wichita Eagle. It says, Lauren Eugene Hall Sr., 65, retired Boeing Wichita superintendent. And my head just exploded after that. because Yeah. Like, this guy worked at Boeing. <laughs> what? <laughs> so you just... You know, it's it's and I think it would be disingenuous. You know, you and Darren Schaefer always ask the question, well, what, what would what would be evidence against him? I don't think he was at Boeing before 71. So yeah. to me, you know, somebody who was trying to promote Hall could say Andy worked at Boeing to, to right. just throw it out there. But to me, I think if he was at Boeing, it was a gift to him towards the end of his life where he might have had friends that worked there, even the CIA, because he was said to be a CIA person in those articles. And there, Brian, you look this up. There's articles about his three kids getting arrested and says next week he's going to be in court. There's never an article that comes out. There's no notice 
in the newspapers about what happened. He was facing 20 years in jail and a million dollar fine. The next thing we know, and John Pappas laughed when I told him that because he said, we looked into it with Paul Tash. We don't think Skip ever served time for that. So it's a very, very interesting story about a guy who was arrested for check forgery in 1956 after he came back from um, Europe and serving in the army. He was arrested a year after he got married to his second wife for shoplifting in Wichita. He was arrested a month before the Kennedy assassination for having de a bunch of dexedrine pills, which is another amphetamine. And then later in life, he's Walter White from Breaking Bad. It's just incredible the things that happened in this guy's life, in his life story. And now I'm completely out of breath. So counselor, I turn it back over to you. Yeah, okay. So, well, one comment real quick. Someone said, you know, somebody said, uh, too many wildly speculative connections already. Provocative linkages do not constitute hard evidence. Well, look, if we had hard evidence connecting anybody to the hijacking, then they'd probably be D.B. Cooper, okay? You know, there is no hard evidence for anyone right. ever. So that's not, that's not, that's not the way we, that's not our, uh, that's not our, our scrutiny for that. Our scrutiny for Cooper persons of interest, suspects, is not hard evidence because there is no hard evidence. I mean, you know, there just isn't unless you want to say that, like, I mean, the closest we came is perhaps the tie particles, if they are what they actually are. You know, and we don't know that. Tom Kay has said maybe it's titanium, calcium or something, right? So right. the tie particles are really the only hard evidence. And again, even if it is what it is, then, you know, we don't know how it got there, you know. But um, so the thing about Hall that I, I'll just start off and say that my favorite thing about this guy is that we have Florence Schaffner 15 minutes after leaving this man's presence she has sat down in a room with the FBI and she says this man had a Latin appearance. Right. Okay. So, I mean, she's not imagining that. I don't think, I mean, this is the one witness who observed him without his sunglasses on, who talked to him. I believe I've counted that Florence Schaffner had eight unique interactions with Cooper before he passed her the note. I mean, she, I mean, she greeted him as he came on the plane. She took his drink. She took his ticket. At the, at the bottom of the stairs. She uh, brought him his change back. She, I mean, there, there were several interactions they had before that. So she walks off the plane and says, this man has a Latin appearance. Now we have Robert Gregory, who I, I can never figure out whether I like his testimony or not, um, because he, for a guy who only claims he got two good looks at a guy, he seems to have says, he seems to think he knows a lot about Cooper, but he did get the suit right. He did say that that Cooper was not wearing a black suit. He was wearing a russet suit, which right. russet is like a brownish color. And Tina says Cooper's suit was brown. So to me, yeah. that actually gives credibility to Robert Gregory that he was able to spot Cooper's suit color when no one else could except for Tina who was right next to him. But Robert Gregory said that Cooper had this quarter ancestry Latin or Native American. So something there that was quasi-ethnic about Cooper. Right. And we have Florence saying Latin appearance. Now, here we have a guy with Lauren Eugene Hall, who is a white boy from Kansas, who is able to pass himself off as, let me pull this up, as a Cuban freedom fighter. Lorenzo Pasillo, freedom fighter. 
Okay. So this is a white dude who looks highly Spanish or Latinish to pull off this Cuban, you know, I mean, we have pay, his alias. He would go around using, you know, Lorenzo Pasillo, a Cuban freedom fighter, answers questions at American Legion Hall. So here's a guy who goes around pretending to be Cuban. Right. That photo, that photo, Ryan, is 1963. So we're talking eight years before the Cooper hijacking. He's already got a little bit of a double chin when he's down. He's smoking with his left hand. He's got a drink right by it. Right. He's actually talking to the American Legion uh, in uh, Santa Clarita, California, right there. And uh, there are three sworn testimonies, one of Richard Hathcock, who worked in Hollywood, California, who stated uh, when he asked, was asked to describe Gerald Hemming and Hall, he describes Hemming as handsome <laughs> and says Hall was ruddy. Uh, yeah. Roy Payne, uh, who testifies to the House Select Committee, calls him Olive, said he had an olive complexion. And in 1963, the John Birch Society, uh, Hall was talking, well, there he is, uh, he's actually next to Hemming in that photo, and they're wearing Cochrane boots, by the way, Yes, uh, which are the boots that... Uh, Lyle Cameron, uh, for those of you that know the Elsinore ghost story, said that uh, the person who came in to see him in July or August of 1971 and was asking about how to jump out of a commercial airliner. There you go. You can see uh, their boots there, that they're wearing their jump boots in, in, that, in that photo. But um, the third person was a polygraph expert in Long Beach, California, because Hall's, Hall's asking all these right-wing anti-communist people for money so that he can amass arms, and he did. John Pappas told me I, I loaded thousands of rounds for him into the back. We went, John Pappas looked, he didn't look up to Skip, but he was in awe of Skip. He's a 16 year old to 19 year old kid. And this guy who marries your mom is a Cuban freedom fighter who, you know, went to, went to Germany for the army. And he's got all these outlandish stories and he's shooting guns with you. My, they made machine guns. Uh, he manufactured, they would take old machine guns where the barrels had been filled in take off the old barrels, convert them back in machine guns and take them down for the Cuban freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. So the, the polygraph expert, because people said, before we give you money, we want to know that you're telling the truth. He passes the polygraph and the polygraph expert said, um, he looked Cuban with a beard and dark skin, but he didn't have a Cuban accent is how mm -hmm. the polygraph expert described him uh, also in 1963. So yeah. you have three people in actual... FBI, DOJ files that are describing him as ruddy, olive, uh, and dark-complected. Yeah, and, and then you see that picture of him where people literally would go around saying he's Lorenzo Pasillo. They made up that name for him when he went to Cuba because he said, what would my name be, you know, in Spanish? And Lauren Hall, like hallway is Pasillo and Lorenzo. <laughs> right. So they gave, the Cubans gave him that name when he was down there. There were two articles that I read where they got it wrong. They said he was from Cuba and made up the name Lauren Hall as an American name. Right, right. Uh, so people even got it wrong where they thought he was actually from Cuba originally. And yeah. he played the part, Ryan. He dressed up for it. He played the part. He raised money. Uh, we have the recordings of him for the John Birch Society where the first line he says in a very deep voice is, I am a Cuban freedom fighter. And yeah. he goes on for over 40 minutes ranting about, you know, what our country should be doing and how we should go down and take Castro out of Cuba. And he's very eloquent and uh but very vehement about it as yeah well. and so i'll transition into that like you know all of my coopery bits about this guy that i like so i like the fact that he like i said he's he has this latin appearance sort of thing to him i do like that 
And, you know, really the, the one thing that people seem to forget is it's like with McCoy. McCoy had a speech impediment and he was a Southerner like I am. He had a very noticeable Southern accent, okay, being from North Carolina. And he had this speech impediment. Cooper's voice was described as low and intelligent, okay? And also, Dennis Lenz, who, who he bought the ticket from, described Cooper's voice as a pleasant voice. And I always laughed and say whatever that means, because I don't know what a pleasant voice is. But a Cooper had no accent. Cooper, they couldn't, they said he had right. no accent. It was just this bland, low voice that was smart and that was pleasant. So that's Hall's voice. And I actually have a recording here. I'll play the right. recording of him here yeah, now. This is on a show call. I found an obscure, like I'm watching this thing called Killing Oswald. And all of a sudden he comes up and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I got it, I got it to Ryan right away after I found it. Yeah, let me play this audio of him, uh, him talking here. So here we go. Uh, here we go. I am a Cuban freedom fighter. I am here bringing to the American people a two-part message. Number one, to tell a story of what I saw, lived, and breathed concerning Cuba and the actions of our government. Number two, to try to awaken the mass of citizens of the United States to the treacherous dealings in which our government has betrayed not only the Cubans, but each and every American. Lovely. That is a, I would say that's a pleasant voice. I would enjoy yeah, a, low vo a low voice, a pleasant voice, lacking any kind of accent. At first, I worry that maybe he had a southern accent, but then you have to remember from 1963 to 19 to up to the Cooper hijacking, he lived in California that whole time, uh, even though he was traversing the country. But he obviously was skilled, I think, through that John Birch Society training of giving those type of speeches and going to the Santa Clarita and going to Knott's Berry Farm to get paid a couple thousand dollars to speak on behalf of things. So uh, that and then we have a, that, that video clip. Yeah. Line. You, you don't have to show if you want to, but I mean, no, he's well, a very engaging guy. So uh, you this can see is a video of him basically. So. When he was in Texas, I believe he claims that in November 63, he was transporting arms to, 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 to Florida. He was passing through there, right? He was on his way to transporting arms to, to his little guerrilla group in the Keys and happened to be arrested in like October or November 63, right? Is that right? Is that what he's discussing in that video clip? We have? Yes, he's uh, he's discussing in the video clip his experiences uh, in Cuba uh, while he was there, after he got back, and after he would go back in as a uh, mercenary or soldier. In the, this video clip I have of him, he's talking about after he got bailed out of Texas, how he's like, I'm not welcome in Texas. So let's, let's roll this video here of him. Yeah. Because I'm not in contact with anybody from Texas. <laughs> you... Uh... Uh, give the impression that you wouldn't like to go to Texas at this point. Well, if I wanted to commit suicide, uh, I would probably go to Dallas, Texas. That's good. And I'll play that one more time for people because it's short. Because I'm not in contact with anybody from Texas. <laughs> you uh, uh, give the impression that you wouldn't like to go to Texas at this point. Well, if I wanted to commit suicide, uh, I would probably go to Dallas, Texas. So, Ryan, that's 1968. And the other thing I noticed is he's got a little bit of a skin wobble under there because he's got a 
tie, you know, it's just like I would if I had my collar buttoned right now. And right. Uh, it's interesting that if he's leaning forward or if you're slouched in an airplane seat like Aaron, uh, Eric has demonstrated, that uh, there's several pictures of Hall having uh, you know, that turkey neckish. Uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna try to get that for people here in a second. I know that was in your book here. I don't have that uh, particularly, but actually, let me find that. Yeah, you can see here for sure. Let me. I think it's yeah, it's in this photograph here. Let me add this photograph uh, to 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 the thing here. Let's see. Okay. Yep. There. Here it is. Okay. So you can see here. Let me pull it up. I have to add it. My bad, guys. Give me. So while you're me. doing that, yeah. No, while you're do, yeah, while you're doing that, I can say that. So at the time of the DB Cooper hijacking, uh, Hall would have been one month away from his 42nd birthday. Right. And uh, he was described by in 1963 when he was 33 years old as being 40 years of age by uh, one witness for the Kennedy thing. And then Jim Garrison actually made a mistake. I thought he was 47 when he was 37. So Hall for multiple times because he smoked a lot. We have pictures of him smoking cig cigarettes and cigars and so on and so forth. Yeah. And as he got older, and I believe he had uh, an amphetamine addiction and because of his epilepsy and his mental issues, I believe that he took amphetamines. Uh, oh, yeah. His, his looks started to deteriorate um, pretty rapidly in his 40s. And so uh, that would lead someone to believe that there you can see how he looks. His hair is matted down there. Um, yeah. you know, this, this is again, probably late, uh, mid-1968. There is something that I thought would disqualify him. And that's, he had a cut under his eye there. And I thought it was a scar, <laughs> but it was actually at the time that he was hospitalized for hepatitis at the beginning of 1968, right after he quashed the garrison subpoena. And he must've cut his eye as well too. And that was healed by the end of 1968 by the yeah, photos. But at first see. I was like, oh, he can't be Cooper. He's got a scar on his face, but it goes away as you see the photos later in 1960. Yeah. And I mean, that photo there, you can really see that he does have some sort of thing there. I, I'm going to try to. Yeah, like a turkey neck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He's got some kind of skinny, you know, th thing going on there with the skin. Let me try to, let me try to zoom in on that for everybody. I mean, one second, people. And I will zoom in on this. Let's see. Here yeah. His, his, his weight would fluctuate between 175 to 195 pounds. Yeah. So you can see there's like a fold there. Um, in the middle where the Adam's apple was, would be. So uh, again, this is already when he is, uh, you know, getting close to being 40 yeah. years of age. Let me point out that most of the pictures of almost all pictures of him, he has facial hair. And right. I, I think that, you know, it would be a, it actually would be a very compelling disguise is if you were always known to have a mustache or a goatee, you just shave it off. And, and and every composite sketch ever is going to be of a, of a clean shaven hijacker. Yeah, I mean, if you think of known to have facial think, yeah, if you think of the unfortunate nine eleven hijacking, those guys all had beards and then shaved them off before they went into the airport in in Boston. Oh yeah, uh, Jim Garrison, <laughs> excuse me, in his a uh, description of trying to get Hall to come and testify, makes a point to say Hall had a beard at the time. That in, in late October 1963, but in early 19, uh, early November 1963, he was seen to have completely shaved his face clean, which is right before the Kennedy assassination. So that's weird. You know, that's Jim Garrison. That's just saying Lauren Hall was using facial hair to his advantage. I mean, the guy went through counterintelligence training in the army and 
and yeah, military I, policing. And I, I liken and, him a lot of times to, um, to like John Lennon a little bit. John Lennon always looks different. Like every time you see John Lennon, I'm like, you know, he always had a different look every six months. This guy really changes his look a lot. Uh, he's very good at being a, a chameleon of sorts. He, he kind of blends in to whatever he needs to be. Right? Yeah, and his hair, his hair, when it's like not matted down, he does Marcel. Like even in that tight picture where I say you and I identified him wearing a, a black clip-on tie with a white clasp or a dark clip-on tie, it's a black and white photo. Yeah. But his hair actually starts to Marcel, which I thought, and then and then you've got that one photo that you showed previously where his, he, he mats his hair down as he gets older as well, too. So it's, uh, and he, he parts his hair on both sides. Yeah, that's interesting. He drinks with both hands. He smokes with his left hand. Uh, he's a very interesting right. person. And, and so one thing that's fascinating about him, so let me just, because it is it is kind of detailed, let me give you my my thousand yard view of right. things uh, about all this for everybody. So basically this guy, this guy was so ballsy that I don't think this guy feared anything because this guy went to go fight with Castro when Castro first came, was trying to overthrow, uh, was it, it's not Bautista, is it? Or I forget who Bautista was in power. Yeah. Bautista was yeah. actually heavily supported by the United States. All the casinos were built. And then Batista yeah, so, started to go nuts and killed 20,000 people. And Eisenhower finally said, whoa. So, so he goes down there and on his own as like this soldier of fortune and, and just hangs out with, you know, Shea and Castro yeah. and all these people. And then has a falling out with them. When they become communists, he goes, okay, screw you guys. I'm going home. But he doesn't go home. He continues to loiter in Cuba, running a military a paramilitary camp training people to go overthrow nicaragua correct under castro's nose like right i mean the balls on this guy to i mean the, I, guess, I guess the only reason he wasn't killed is because he was an american for one thing i would guess um, so so the u.s had not uh, changed their uh, policies towards cuba by the time he was returned in 1959 um but had it been a year or two later <laughs> he would have been executed uh, without a doubt, because Morgan and other people that were very famously on Castro's side with the United States um, were detained and then and murdered. Uh, so absolutely. Yeah. And so basically, so then he comes back. So he's basically de deported out of Cuba and begins this like vendetta against Castro and joins this. He creates this group called Interpen, which was it's almost like a soldier of fortune paramilitary group that yeah just, it stood for intercontinental penetration force but it was not affiliated with the military and it was supposedly not affiliated with the cia but we now know that it was affiliated with jm wave alpha 66 operation, yeah, 40, guys, operation northwoods operation it was, mongoose it was a collection of soldiers of fortune who would go and they would literally go in a boat and like shoot up cuban boats they would they would they would uh, you know drive these boats to cuba and or jump out or from their boats just start shooting their guns and stuff at cubans at castro's forces it was like and the cia didn't endorse them but didn't stop them right you know in in some strange way and so interpen so one thing about interpen though is what was the thing about jumping at night uh, so Jerry Hemming uh, is this guy we haven't talked a lot about. He truly was a expert paratrooper. Talk like about a Ted Braden and, and not probably even his greatest Ted, but 
when he went to Cuba, Castro actually made him a colonel in his army and had him as the head instructor of paratrooping at Cuba. That's Hemming right there. He was said to be a six foot six, uh, handsome, huge guy who was the true soldier of fortune, paratrooping expert. Uh, and they did they, a guy that he got a card from at the Elsinore Jump Center who worked for the Los Angeles Times, he found his card got him to go back to Florida with him in 1961 to write stories about Interpen. And this syndicated article went throughout the co uh, country showing Hemming wearing this bush hat with half of the brand attached to the side, like, you know, and the parachute canopies coming down. All these letters flooded in from young men around the country that wanted to fight Castro and communism. And Hemming had to send out a letter and it was in an FBI document. And I have it in the book. And in the letter, it's basically Hemming saying, thank you for your interest. I want to let you know we're not affiliated with the military. Uh, we're not supported. Uh, you would need to have your own funds, your own means of getting here, your own transportation. And to be an interpen, you need to have done a minimum of five jumps, which means if you're not already special forces or have been in the military, you need to go to your local jump center. Free falls. You need, yep. You need to have your own. Uh, gear. He goes, a front and a reserve chute. You need to have goggles. You need to have boots. And then you need to bring them with you here because we don't have them for you. And it was their way of weeding out all these people coming down to the Florida Keys when they're getting money from CIA, JM Wave, and, and you know, uh, right-wing yeah. groups and giving John Birch speeches. But they really are a off-board uh, organization. And so to get to your point about the night jumps, Hemming states, and I believe it was to, uh, uh, in an interview with A.J. Weberman, uh, there's two guys that interviewed Hemming a lot, Greg Burnham, A.J. Weberman, both uh, JFK people, Weberman's deceased now. But he would talk about Interpen with them. They would ask him all kinds of questions because the, a lot of them believe that Hemming was still involved in some way with the JFK assassination. Hemming talks about Interpen. He talks about how they would be groups. They would split guys into groups of 12. They had to know how to shoot. They had to know how to parachute. They had to know how to pilot. They had to know how to swim. And they would go on raids into Cuba. And later he talks about how Alpha 66 would send these guys into <laughs> excuse me, to parachute during the day. And they were getting arrested or shot as soon as they hit the ground. Because Cuba, you know, they would see these planes coming and these guys parachuting. So Hemming talks about that's when we started training and doing blind drops which means Interpen at No Name Key in the Florida Keys started training to do jumps at night and train specifically. They would go and train over different parts of Cuba where they knew that they, the planes wouldn't get caught, dropping guys at night, uh, trying teaching them how to survive it so they wouldn't get shot during the day if, if they jumped. And so I have that passage uh, exactly as Jerry Hemming says it in the book as well, too. Right. And so... That's fascinating. So this is somebody who specifically trained to jump at night, yet was not a skydiver. And, and that is a unique um, trait that we have. Like you said, the Goldilocks zone with Cooper. Cooper has, Cooper has this thing where he's not a skydiver, but he, but he, but he certainly should have had some free fall experience, right? So you would hope that 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 Cooper had some free fall experience. Now, not not often do our military parachute is free fall. They're mostly static line jumpers. 
So a few of them are free falls like Braden. And here we have these paramilitary guys who aren't skydivers, but they right. are, but they're parachutists. And that's really what you're looking for with Cooper, in my opinion, is someone who has this sort of quasi parachute knowledge. But so something else interesting is that now you were discussing, didn't, didn't he also, dis, didn't Hall himself discuss pressurization of aircraft during jumps? Yes. Yeah, so there's two YouTube links. And you actually, when you first played audio, that's a link to two videos that, that I link in the book and that you can go right to YouTube and type in Lauren Hall, John Birch Society and find them yourselves. Um, but he talks on that tape in his own voice about how he led teams that would drop from air and that he would talk with the pilots about climate configuration and plane pressurization for those missions that he would be leading where his team would be jumping out of the plane. So you literally have him talking amazing. about that. That's amazing. Also, Jerry Hemming talks about how they requested from the CIA to have parachute planes. And he describes that as planes that they could jump out of the back of, as opposed to having to worry about jumping out of the side of the airplane. Right. So it, it all kind of, it's strange. It's so it, 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 I just, I just love it that he's so I've also come to the conclusion lately that Cooper was probably a pilot. I, I, I just seems that way to me. And we now know that Lauren Hall was a pilot himself and was obviously married to one of these women who was a pioneer pilot. She was, you know, uh, this, she, the, the, the 99s was the group that Amelia Earhart. That's right. They started right. with 99 members and Amelia Earhart was one. And she was part of the South central chapter of the 99s in Kansas. Um, and again, she worked for a man named Chris Hess who left Kansas city, uh, a firm in Kansas city electronics company to come down and be the plant manager of the Cessna plant. The engineers reported to him, the test pilots, the experimental people. So, you know, she's the executive assistant to this guy while she's learning how to fly, which means they're back in Wichita in 64 and 65, and she's potentially out living in Pasadena, Monterey Park, West Covina, right where Lockheed, right where, you know, jet propulsion labs are. Um, and they're both flying. And, you know, did they buy the clip-on tie at JCPenney's? Did she borrow it from a friend? I mean, they're around people. Cessna was experimenting and had parts for planes that were made of titanium back right. at that time. Uh, they also had landing gear struts that were later made of titanium. But their people were working with titanium in Wichita at the Cessna plant. And then, of course, Hall and his wife moved to basically CIA Central of Los Angeles, which is this El Monte Monterey Park area, mm -hmm. an hour away from Elsinore and right next to where Lockheed and Jet Propulsion are. Right. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean anything without evidence, but it's just interesting as you keep piecing all this together that, you know, well, would she have access to that? And then obviously there's a line in a 99's newsletter where it says. Ann and Skip Hall flew a Cessna 172 to an event. And I put a picture of the cockpit of a Cessna 172 with the yokes. And you can imagine this husband and wife sitting right next to each other, right. flying a little plane to this event. And so for me, the thing about Cooper, these suspects and things, I, I will do a whole video at some point about my 
about my what my suspect matrix really is, mm. but the the thing about it is is that I would say that th- consider this, and this is where Hall scores so highly, right? You know, we've got his height is the right height. He's listed as as high as six foot tall. He's five ten to six feet tall when you look at everything. Uh, people are talking about him. Yeah, he averages out at five eleven if you take all the reports and all the evidence. So. Yeah, so which is funny because that's exactly where they have Cooper as five ten to six feet tall. Right. So he had the opportunity. This is a guy who was working just as like a bartender, essentially, at the time, which is not what he wanted to do with his life. I'm sure that he was missing the adventure of going down to Cuba and jumping out of planes and shooting, you know, shooting people from ships and just all this kind of mad, mad stuff he was doing. So he had the he has the complexion. Okay, he has clearly had the olive skin. This guy passed for a Cuban when he was, you know, stealing money from people. Right. He was age 40 to 50. Ding, ding, right? Uh, he's a smoker. He's a drinker. He has parachute training. 175, has- 175 to 185, yeah. sometimes 190 pounds. So. And that's a component that people miss about Cooper is his weight. He was not a small individual. He was not skinny. Like, you know, Tina said he was 180. That's not small. Right. I mean, that's not a skinny person, especially for that era. So Hall was a bit of a bigger framed individual. Um, right. He had parachute training, was a pilot. He had aviation history. Um, he was a criminal. He ostensibly knew the Pacific Northwest because of his time in the military, and also his sister was living up there, so he visited. I'm sure he knew he knew he knew where McCord Air Force Base was. Clearly, he had no family who were who would be at home saying, "Why, why aren't you going? Uh, why, why, why aren't you back the day before Thanksgiving?" You know, I mean, it wasn't like that. He was basically separated. Essentially, it seems like that was where he was beginning to be separated, we think, from his his second wife. Yeah, he could have shaved his mustache off on Wednesday or even in the bathroom PDX and had till Monday night or Tuesday. to. He's got a little John Waters, uh, you know, Rhett Butler mustache that he would wear. He's got he has demolition experience. He knows how to make a bomb or a very convincing bomb. Yeah, I mean, they, they they did missions to blow up refineries in Central America. So, I mean, he was definitely a demolitions expert. Right. He, he literally had done this stuff himself. Yeah. So, and, and that's something that people forget about with the bomb is that most hijackers, they, they never, Cooper has the most elaborate fake bomb of any hijacker I've ever encountered. I've looked up the bomb, right, hijacker bomb, and, and you, you read all these articles where hijackers have a bomb. It's always obvious flares or it's literally nothing it's a shoebox that they just say is a bomb you know cooper either made a very very convincing fake or made a real bomb right right um and this is a guy who didn't fear death i don't think that hall ha- i don't think he cared um anybody no, who I, I, I think into- was, yeah i think he was medicating with amphetamines um which you know a lot of people in world war ii people in europe post-world war ii I mean, they gave them out like candy to the guys who flew and, and yeah. did things. And and I think with his medical condition of he said he never had another epileptic seizure after that first time. We don't know if that's true or not, because he didn't want to get kicked out of the army again. Right. But one of the things that's prescribed for epilepsy that most people don't know is benzodrine. And right. his whole life, besides this void of where we really have no information on him in 1971, there's like nothing. It's like when you're looking at Ted Braden or, you know, Nikki and I were talking about Nikki's like, that's because they're spooks, man. They go for these gaps where you can't find any information. Yeah, it is that. interesting. So, I mean, he called himself a CIA jackal. I mean, which jackal. is funny. Now, 
he would say, I received 15 to $20,000 for this, but I don't know where it came from. Right. Uh, and, and, and the difference in the people like Rackstraw and Rekka who claim this sort of stuff, none of those guys were doing things like Interpen, and, and, you know, that were tangentially part of quasi CIA endorsed sort of stuff, right? He actually did this stuff. He was there. And um, I'll point out for people, I'll show this photograph I love. We have a Cooper suspect now, person of interest, who has probably the best tattoo. Oh, you did I give you the eagle tattoo on his no, back? No, I got it. No, so oh here. my God. I don't, think I, I don't think I included that in the book. I think I sent that to you. I didn't want to put him in his underwear in the book, but thank you, Ryan, for showing me. Yes, no, this is a, this is a photograph that someone took of, from, uh, from behind of him in his underwear. Yeah, so interestingly, this is him waking up with the boys down at No Name Key in 63, and there's pictures of him holding a rifle and a machete and smoking cigarettes and getting ready then to go outside and lead a mission because he's now pointing at guys. But he uh, he got that tattoo while he was in Germany. John Pappas asked me if I knew about his tattoo. He didn't have this picture. So as John and I got to know each other, because that's always difficult at first when you're talking to someone about a quote unquote family member. We said, did you know about his tattoo? And I said, you mean the Eagle? And he's like, how do you know about that? I'm like, there's these pictures. Interestingly enough, this picture eventually came out. There was a, a guy named Harold Weisberg who was, uh, wrote several books on the Kennedy assassination. He was actually part of the OSS before the CIA, then worked for the CIA. Then he uh, was an investigator for the Warren Commission, became an investigator for Garrison. And for Garrison, he was looking into Hall. Um, but uh, Weisberg, when he met Hall at the House Select Committee, showed Hall a folder of all these photos he had found of him. And Lauren Hall said, oh, can I have those? I'd love to have those and go home and show them to everybody because people don't believe me. And Weisberg wrote letters after that. Please give me these photos back. Lauren Hall did not want photos of himself out uh, after the garrison stuff in 68, 69. I don't know if that has anything to do with Cooper or not. And I don't want to be the guy that's like confirmation bias, but it's very interesting that Hall with the tattler with this stuff did not want photos of himself being out. Uh, uh, and he never gave Harold Weisberg those photos back. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty neat stuff. You know, I, I just like that. I just like what a, you know, he is really a, a roguish type of individual and he's a criminal too. I mean, that's, that's, we often lose sight when we, you know, Cooper's a bit of a anti-hero to a lot of us. And Do you have Nick, Nick? I was just checking chat real quick because we haven't been good about saying thank All you to right. everybody. And you got over 120 people here. So thank you, everybody, for awesome, tuning yes. in. And I'm sorry. We're trying to get through so much information. And I definitely want to answer questions and, and, and have more discussion with all of you guys. So I apologize that we haven't been tech, uh, good chat uh, acumen. But Nikki, they were talking about the lower lip being fat or was it big enough? And... You know, you and I had that discussion because yeah. at first I knew that Paul's lip would protrude when he would talk, but it was more of a lower ridge. He had one of those weird pursed mouths, like a mush mouth. Mm -hmm. His teeth, his upper teeth were actually really short and dark from cigarette stains. So he would look geeky when he would talk. But what struck me about Hall, and I asked you this question yesterday, is then we have Florence Schaffner and Bill Mitchell saying the closest photo is Donald Sylvester Murphy and Florence is especially in his nose, mouth, and lips. And I look at the picture of Donald Sylvester Murphy, and I'm like, I don't see Donald Sylvester Murphy right. having a... So I think it was more of a ridged lip where the bottom of the lip is 
is ridged down and you can see that there what protrude protrudes from yeah, the upper one. A little bit yeah for sure i actually have uh i don't know if you have them but i have uh photos in the book of um once you take that one down you know i've got photos in the book here of hall next to donald sylvester murphy and the nose is almost an exact match uh oh, right. and there's a picture of him you know down here where this picture from hall um uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, it's almost an exact match for Donald Sylvester Murphy. So that kind of freaked me out because I'm thinking, you know, D.B. Cooper has to have a giant bottom fat lip, yet you got Floyd Shafter saying Donald Sylvester Murphy nose, mouth, lips. So I'm, I'm, I'm confused by that because that that to me is, yeah, you know, I, I like you said, there's enough evidence where people said that his lower lip protruded. So yeah, I agree with that. But, I, but to hear Bill Mitchell and foreign say that this photo was the closest that they had seen yeah and odd. yeah and so i've got some more pictures here let me pull up here <clears throat> excuse me so let's see uh, this one was obviously from probably 63 and you can already see he's got some bit of a little turkey thing going on there a little bit already yeah in that photo one thing i will say because nikki's participating and i know nikki uh nikki knows this because i messaged him about um how I love Milton Vordahl as yeah. a person of interest. I love, Me too. you know, uh, Ted Braden and Drew knows that as a person. Me too. Of interest. <laughs> yeah. So I understand that I'm a little bit different. I'm not going to go to battle and try to make a case for Lauren Hall. I want to put the evidence out there and let people uh, decide. And so I, but I totally respect and understand the people that want to make a case for a person of interest that they believe is, is uh, D.B. Cooper. I'm just, you know, I'm going to leave that up to, uh, other people to make a determination if he should be a person of interest or not. And I have no hard evidence, just like we can't for Braden, we can't for- No Bill. one does. Uh, I mean, yeah, we can't. And so I, I just am not going to be uh, kind of playing that game in the community, although I totally respect, Nikki knows I love Nikki. I love, uh, uh, you know, you guys and Eric with Vince Peterson and Dave Feudman with William J. Smith and- Drew and yeah. Drew with Ted, uh, but I'm probably more on the Drew the Drew spectrum where Drew says I don't know if Braden was D.B. Cooper or not. I, I think he was. But again, there yeah. he's got that weird you know upper lip purse and the bottom lip where you see the shadow under his bottom lip there. So, um, right. I mean, you know, th this is honestly the first like person of interest that I know of who has been public that has what we would say is the olive swarthy Latin appearance. I mean, this guy, if I, if I looked at this guy, I would think this person is Latin of some degree. I would say, and by maybe the way, this is a later photo where that cut under his eye had healed. So this is one of the photos where I knew that that was a cut versus a scar under his eye. Oh, right, right. And here he is. Uh, this is a weird picture of him uh, laying down. Somebody took a picture of him and, and on, laying on a couch, um, which is just strange. But, you know, if you... I need to try to find that that photograph. Yeah, I think he had a mole on his cheek, but I something tells me in certain photos it's so unnoticeable that I don't know if that's something that he embellished or not. But it was in multiple photos you don't see it. Like, well, there he's too far away. But you know, I would say look at all the photos because Nikki, I thought the same thing: scar under the eye and a little dot there. 
but there's plenty of photos where that's not there. And again, I'm not going to try to argue speculation that he concealed something or not. I have no idea, but I shared those same concerns when I was first looking at photos, but there's enough there where like the uh, garrison photo with the clip-on tie where you don't see that yeah. little dot there. So, no, I mean, that photo, I mean, so this is a photo, I photoshopped that with, to, to, I'm to remove his mustache to say kind of what he would look like yeah. in a normal, you know, and there you still have the blemish that's going away from the cut, but you don't see the little dot above it. So it's the whole dot thing is weird to me. I uh, I agree that that needs to be looked into more. Yeah, let me let me download this. I, I like this here. I, I, this is one that I really like. I, I like this. It's going to take me a second, but the um he he kind of voice. He's one of those guys who can look like a lot of different a lot of the different sketches in a way. Yeah, and you see how his hair marcells a little bit in that. It is, and his hairline's right too. It's not, you know, it's not so receded that it's, right. you know, but it's you can tell, and we can't see the back of his head. You know, uh, Alice Hancock said that Cooper was slightly balding, and so we can't see the back of his head there. Right. Um, but I would suspect that maybe it, will, you know, he he may have had some hair loss. I mean, he obviously was losing some hair. If you look at the cover, you know, the photo on on the cover and all, I'll. Uh... Hold it up. I mean, oh, you, yeah, his, I'll, you I'll, can I'll, definitely I'll, see that he's balding there. Um, and this is, uh, yeah, it's a little, you know, in that in that kind of timeline of where he would have been doing the D.B. Cooper stuff. So, yeah, I, I like this photo here. This is a little, little comparison that I did with I added a, a little goatee onto the hoodlum sketch. And it <laughs> looks pretty looks pretty solid, I think. You know? Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's that's pretty good, folks. By the way, this guy was described as dangerous. John Pappas even described him as dangerous. He said, you know, Skip would joke and stuff, but you didn't mess around with Skip. Uh, he was dead. He was a deadly serious guy that he, he was a person that killed people, admitted to it to Congress in Cuba, that he was on assassination groups. And, and uh, you know, he was offered 50,000. He testified that he was offered $50,000 to kill President Kennedy and turned it down. And he testifies to that. And Right. Uh, to Congress. So, I mean, this this was a this was a dude that uh, Jerry Hemp. There's a chapter about I, I say doing it and the job because we know that D.B. Cooper famously used the line, no funny, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. Jerry Hemming literally says he gave Lauren Hall a hard time because they had a falling out. But he said Lauren Hall could do the job. And mm. uh, there's a chapter of the times that Lauren Hall uses the word job and other people use the word job. Um, in, in uh, about Lauren Hall, and that's in the book as well too. I may put it on Facebook for the people. I may put it on the Facebook group, but, but there's a there's audio of Hall be getting really angry about. Yeah, uh, that that became an issue where uh, uh, Hall is being recorded uh, prior to his House Select Committee on assassinations. He's very angry that he's been the national tattler, and that his name has been splashed all over the country as. It literally says the men who killed John F. Kennedy. So imagine whether he was involved or not. Imagine what that would do to your life, your family uh, to in 1975 to have your face splashed. And he's testifying in 1977. And he's being interviewed between that time. And he's and he uses foul language and says Santo traffic. There's a reason why Santo Traficante and I are the only ones that are left alive. And he uses very foul language to say, and that's the way it's going to stay. Uh, and I'm not talking about anything, and that's the reason why I'm still alive. Uh, so he's he's very adamant at uh, about that. And yeah, when you listen to that, Ryan, the first thing you said to me is, "Oh yeah, that's a that's a dude you don't want to mess around with." No, he's a bit frightening. And look, I mean, again, 
we have this whole notion that Cooper was a nice guy. And again, Ted Bundy was a nice guy until he killed you, right? I mean, that, that's not, you know, people will do things to get their way. They're manipulative. I have this, this guy was a con man. I mean, he went around pretending, this guy went around pretending to be a Cuban and, and would get donations and just pocket the money. You know, you know, I think about I think about uh, Larry Carr being on Darren's show and talking about his profile. And Larry, of course, goes into talking about the Raleigh branded cigarettes. But then Darren goes, "Larry, what's your profile for DB Cooper?" And besides Larry, at the end, saying he believes that Cooper died that night, mm-hmm. Larry describes Lauren Eugene Hall, anti-social. Like the guys at Interpen ended up hating him. He didn't have any close personal friends. He yeah. would fall out with people. He couldn't keep jobs. He was a truck driver. He was a bartender. He worked at a car dealership. He was the guy that loved the action, wanted to be in the action, probably was using amphetamines, couldn't work a job besides the army roles that he did, which a guy like Ted Braden, you know, you think about Ted as well, too, uh, once he got uh, back uh, away from Vietnam. But um, Hall was antisocial, was a blue collar guy out of Little Newton, you know, Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, he was arrogant. He probably thought he knew more than he did, like Larry said. Mm-hmm. He was not known as a parachute expert or even a parachuter. He, you know, Hemming said he jumped at Elsinore. John Pappas said, but John Pappas said, I don't even remember talking to Skip about parachutes or parachuting ever. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe Hall just let the guys jump out of the plane and he was the leader that stayed on the plane. Um, right. Obviously, he would have to have some parachuting experience to be an interpen. But when yeah. I when I listened to Larry's description of who D.B. Cooper was, a blue collar guy who thought he had enough information to do the jump, uh, Hall fits that Larry's criteria, except for not dying that night. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting is that there's no indication that Hall there's no indication that he came into a bonanza of money, I don't think, you know, because I, I mean. Well, then we get back into the Kennedy stuff because there was the thought that somehow if he was part of it, he'd get that $50,000. And in uh, the spring of 1964, he and his wife purchased a motel in Kernville, California, along with a five-bedroom house. And the total price of the hotel and the house was $48,000. So, you know, imagine the speculation that goes on. Did did uh, did Lester Logue, H.L. Hunt... Santo Traficante, did somebody get that money to Lauren Hall where he was able to to purchase that hotel in 1964 within six months of the Kennedy assassination? Pretty yeah. interesting speculation in that regard as well, too. Yeah, this is a good picture here. Actually, I actually kind of like this. You can kind of see his you can see his size here. Uh, let me bring this up for people. Let's see. Pardon me here. Let me do this. There we go. All right. Here we go. All right. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Brian, for saying you like the show. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I'm sorry. There, there you go. I'm getting another one. No, sorry. Right. I don't know how to picture this. It was 70 degrees here today and 60 yesterday. It's going to be 43 tomorrow. And I was outside getting completely sun roached. So if I look like oh. a cross between Hellboy and Jim Gaffigan, <laughs> I apologize. Oh. Yeah, I don't know how to put us aside, uh, to the side of this. But anyway. Um, but yeah, th- there's him. And you can kind of see his height, too, in this photograph. I mean, he's, he wasn't a short guy. He was taller than average. But again, I like the I, I just like the fact that I like somebody who has facial hair. The idea of someone that is, I mean, again, Cooper did not disguise himself much. Right. But 
that would be a really simple disguise is if you were somebody who, you know, I think about McCoy, like, like, I mean, there are people who will wear a fake beard or they'll wear a fake mustache as a disguise. Right. Well, you can take it off to be a disguise. Right. If you well, again, you have the nine eleven hijackers who did exactly that. They shaved their beards the night before the, the the morning, you know, the night before the hijacking, so that they would not look like when they checked in for the flights the people that they had done the flight training as. Right. Right. So you know, I just like the, the main things that I like about him is I just like that this guy's a criminal, and, and that's kind of where I've started. You know, and maybe it's because of my studying of the copycats so much. But, you know, I mean, this guy was, I mean, he was a, Cooper was a, Cooper committed a capital crime. I mean, you know, he could have been executed for it, it, it theoretically. I don't think they ever, they never, they never executed any hijackers, but he could have. And this is not a crime that you just wake up and do. I mean, you have to have built up to being this guy. And this is a guy who jumped out of planes at night, you know, went to Cuba. This guy was not afraid of Castro. Right. It, he was not. He was not, he was afraid, not afraid of, of Fidel of, Castro. Yeah. Then I, I don't he's forging checks in 1956. He's married in 1960 to this beautiful second wife who works for Cessna and he gets caught shoplifting. Uh he yeah. you know, it's just he's committing you know, crimes. He's arrested, just he's arrested cool. in September of 63 in in Miami or in uh, you know, he's arrested in September and October, the same year that John F. Kennedy is killed in November. And he's busted with dexedrine and he's got weapons in Miami and they let them go. The weird thing is the letting them go in Miami. That to me just reeks of jam wave and CIA and all that stuff. Cause they were bringing the weapons there to, to run the, the stuff to Cuba. But uh, yeah, he was a guy that, that uh, had obviously had some intelligence to be selected to be in counterintelligence in the, in the army in Germany sure. and a military police officer. He planned raids. He was part of planning the Bayo Pauli raid for those of you that are into the JFK Cuba stuff. He didn't go on the raid. So Hollum also, uh, he, he was sneaky. Like, he's like, yeah, I'm going to plan it. You guys go on it. I'm going yeah, to have a plan and you guys sneaky. jump out of it. But by 1971, here's a guy who's maybe stuck bartending, like you said. And somebody asked, what's his motive for this? I certainly don't know if he... But I list about 15 different things that it could have been. And with Lauren Eugene Hall, he talks about a grudge. He uses the word grudge when he testifies to Congress. Mm. Uh, he's mad about his house getting destroyed. He's mad about his second wife leaving him. He's mad about, uh, or you know, the problems that he had. He's, you know, he's mad about a lot of stuff a lot of the time. And I list about 15 different reasons why he might have had a grudge. Uh, to do the Cooper hijacking. I don't know if any of them are right, but it's almost a fielder's choice with this guy. There's a lot there to look at as far as a potential moment. And then you just look at, did he do it? Cause he's got mental issues and figured, well, I'm going to go see my sister and nobody knows where I'm going to be. And I could probably pull this off and I didn't get busted for the Kennedy thing. And you know, I have no idea. I have no idea. And that yeah, is, wild. No that is speculation on my part, but well, Not knowing I'll, what the D.B. Cooper's motive is, because we don't know who D.B. Cooper was, you can certainly lot of, list a lot of things as you learn about this guy and his life on why he yeah. would have a grudge. Yeah, for sure. So the, and again, 
crime doesn't have to have a, a grudge. And it's almost like all criminals have grudges. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing in a way. Right. Like they're, they're pissed about something. Something's wrong. You know, I don't have enough money. I, I'm right. not famous enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not what I should be. So I'm not, you know, I don't have prospects, you know, but he, I just like the con man aspect. I like the parachute training. I like that he's a pilot. Right. I like that he's Latin. I like that he didn't give a crap. He was afraid of nothing. Clearly. I right. like that he has family in Seattle to where he could, you know, and we know he's flown over Tacoma before too. So, right. And so, you know, it's all circumstantial. And so, the thing about it is worth, I like his voice too. Like I said, I like the fact that this guy has a low, intelligent, Midwestern, um, which is what they thought, accent that was pleasant, you know? And for those, I'll play it again. It's, you know, we'll play this clip again for people who didn't hear it. Here he is, his voice again. I am a Cuban freedom fighter. I am here bringing to the American people a two-part message. Number one, to tell a story of what I saw, lived and breathed concerning Cuba and the actions of our government. Number two, to try to awaken the mass of citizens of the United States to the treacherous dealings in which our government has betrayed not only the Cubans, but each and every American. Because I'm not in contact with anybody from Texas. <laughs> you uh, give the impression that you wouldn't like to go to Texas at this point. Well, if I wanted to commit suicide, uh, I would probably go to Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I mean, that's that's compelling. You know, Ryan, I just think for the sake of listing the checkboxes, let me go through the list. Uh, did he have the opportunity to do it? Yeah, he was living in California. He could have said, I'm going to visit my sister. He could. He disappeared whenever he wanted to disappear. And his family was used to that because he was gone all the time. His height was listed between 5'10 to 6. His weight was 175 to 195. His eye color listed in military records, uh, brown, hazel. His hair was black. Uh, there are, there's sworn testimony of people saying that he had an olive ruddy complexion. He could pass for Latin descent, if, we, if we've demonstrated. Uh, he was between age 40 and 50. He was approximately 42 years of age, and he was described multiple times as looking older than he was. Uh, he had military experience. He had military policing experience. Uh, he was a demolitions explosive expert with experience in bomb making. He suffered from depression and mental illness and took medication because of it. Uh, there's amphetamine use and uh, throughout the decades of his life, he was a drinker. There's a report that he met for drinks with people during his testimony during the House Select Committee during assassination, specifically with Harold, Harold Weisberg. He was not described as handsome when other people in the same photos were. He was definitely a smoker. Uh, he wore a dark clip-on tie in a 1968 photo. He has a deep voice, which was recorded in which you've heard. He had a Midwest or kind of no accent. He had airplane knowledge. We believe he had piloting knowledge and he had an FAA student pilot certificate. And uh, there's an article where he flew with a Cessna 172 with his wife having uh, airplane knowledge. He had parachute knowledge and training, as we talked about, and talked with pilots about plane pressurization and, you know, uh, dropping from air with them and climate controls. He was a criminal. Uh, we've demonstrated that he was he was arrested multiple times, included uh, after the hijacking as well, too. He could have an executive appearance, as you've seen from some of the photos. He would could be polite and professional, uh, as you've heard from uh, the recordings. Um, he had knowledge of Tacoma and McCord Air Force Base. He was discharged from Fort Lewis uh, from the Army, and that document is this. 
He had family in the Seattle area. He lived one hour from the Elsinore Jump Center. Two people he was associated with, uh, one telling me directly and another one on a recording, jumped at the Elsinore Jump Center. He had two direct associates uh, uh, with that. That's about, I don't know, 25 things right there, Ryan, that he checks boxes for. And I don't know how different that is from your uh, matrix that you put together. Close. Uh, but it's a heck of a lot of boxes for a guy that you have video of, you have voice recordings of, you have a picture wearing a clip-on tie with a white clasp. Do I think he's D.B. Cooper? I don't know. Am I going to say he's D.B. Cooper? No, I'm not. I personally believe he should be a person of interest. And again, the purpose for writing this book is to get this information out to all of you guys in the community to say, let's look into this guy more and, and see if, if there's anything that we can rule him out as D.B. Cooper or find out more information about him. And by the way, uh, this is a man who got three of his adult children arrested. They're now, all three of them are now deceased. And an 80-year-old man who's working with me, who I said is the Goldilocks family member, is all in with me on this, looking into this. Um, and this is a guy who was accused of killing the president of the United States nationally, arrested multiple times. There's no, there's no family member out there. I even uh, had an exchange with one of his grandsons, who I won't mention by name. But there's not a lot you could say about him. And certainly accusing him of jumping out of an airplane where nobody got killed is not as terrible as accusing him of killing a president of the United States. So right. it's kind of a Goldilocks for me with the Goldilocks family member. But to me, it's more, that, that's not what's important. It's look at all this data and information and make a decision for yourself. And again, like I said, I'm not here to try to convince anybody that he was D.B. Cooper. I'm here to say I did all this research and wanted to bring it to the community for us to talk about and for you guys to, to learn more about it. Right. Yeah. And I just pulled up this here where <clears throat> this is an article about him being arrested him being then having to chase him around from three different countries to, to, to get him. And he was in his sixties at this time, right? Yeah. He, by the time he was brought back in 1989, 90, he would have turned 60 and he passed away at 65. So he did not live a long life. Um, and obviously he's, uh, John Pappas wasn't aware of what actually took his life, uh, but uh, that's something that I'm still looking into right now. But uh, yeah, and uh, there was no report of what the sentence was or what happened to him after that. There's another uh, article around that time, Ryan, and I actually um, take bullet points from it in the book of the CIA responded uh, because articles were CIA agent is involved in methamphetamine ring. Mm. CIA releases a statement saying, we can neither confirm nor deny if anybody is a member of the CIA, nor would we ever do that. But we do not count any illegal activities. Here you see his, uh, Chris Brewer found this first, uh, but this was uh, his death notice in the Wichita Eagle, where it says retired Boeing Wichita superintendent, which is just crazy. He, did, he was in real estate. He owned, ended up owning multiple properties in California when he moved back to Wichita in 1976. Around that time, he... Uh, he was in real estate as well, too. You know, somebody just asked for us to show that that comparison again between the two sketches or the, the sketch here. When you add the hoodlum, you add this goatee onto the hoodlum. That's pretty damn good. Honestly, that's pretty solid. Yeah, and there's if, if you look at the there's many photos of him in the book. Um, he has different looks. All the, like there's times all when time. he looks really geeky sitting next, like not the one with the Cochrane boots, but there's another one with him wearing a V-neck sweater sitting next to Jerry Hemming. And he looks like this geeky, kind of ugly dude. And then there's other pictures of him where he looks like Errol Flynn. So it's just yeah, uh, he's it's, all it's over incredible. the place. 
Yeah, this is the this is that photograph of uh of him looking like a real nerd here right. with uh with uh what was it with Hemming, I guess. Is, is that there this is? Yeah, this I'm is sorry, what, bro. I'm saying that I there's this photograph here. Here's the one that you're talking about where he's looking like a kind of a nerd sort of there. Yeah, he's got a cigarette in one hand, he's got a double chin, he's holding out and and the photo underneath this photo it says gorilla trainers. Jerry Hemming. And, in, and in this Very article, cool. in this article, the guy who writes this article writes the very handsome Gerald Hemming, and then he says, and Lauren Hall. <laughs> Just, you know, so. Yeah. The other thing good. about Hall is he had a narrow forehead which gave him these points on his eyebrow. Yeah. Uh, on his eyebrows. And if you look at the Cooper sketches and like when Donald Sylvester Murphy took off his hat, Florence was like, no, no, no. His forehead was too wide. Right. But, but Hall definitely had a narrow forehead. Uh, where he, his eyebrows would even peak up because of it, right? And I think on the on the uh, Cary Grant sketch, uh, you know, he's got that peaked eyebrow, and that's why I put that picture on the cover. The I put the Grant sketch on the cover of the book, right. along with, <coughs> excuse me, Hall, um, you know, wearing sunglasses that Ryan put on him, but he's got a peaked eyebrow like the Cary Grant sketch. Yeah, and so let's see. I'll add this. Uh, so here's let's just wrap it up here i guess we've been on an hour and a half so this is the book it's available now on amazon uh darren schaefer our cooper vortex podcaster uh texted me a photograph of him holding the book so i just i just heard from uh darren and well he, that's high praise i'm such a fan of darren's and it is you know, i haven't met darren personally i um uh, got to CooperCon with you in uh 2022 but uh I, I hope to shake hands with Darren sometime. I've, I've listened to every podcast multiple times, starting with Bruce's back in 2018. And the Cooper Vortex podcast is a gift to all of us. Uh, thank you, Darren. And uh, thanks for doing what you've been doing about uh, this case. Because um, I know Darren isn't doing it for a lot of money, just like you and I aren't doing this for a lot of money. But it's uh, no, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, a, it's high praise to see see that photo. So thank you very much. Yeah, definitely not what that's about. So I will uh, put this back up. So yeah, everybody go check out Where Was Skip? And uh, I think uh, hopefully we can get uh, we can get uh, Packer onto uh, the Cooper Vortex podcast uh, and talk with Darren about it. So anyway, that's all, folks. And um, join the Facebook group, DB Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook. Uh, you can check out my website, norjack.org. And uh, but we're, I'm going to post all this stuff, or Packer is um, a lot of this stuff on uh on the on the facebook group there and uh we'll have a we'll just we'll, and we'll let everybody can see it you know but the main the, the best way to see this is just to buy the book on amazon i mean it's yeah it's to the simple. kindle is 2.99 i think i may make a whole dollar off of that so uh yeah whatever yeah. so i'll pay i'll give i'll buy you a drink if you buy the book when i see a cooper Con or exactly well, anyway um, yeah thanks thank you ryan it's been a pleasure I, again much gratitude to you and uh I know we didn't want to get into the Kennedy stuff, but uh, as more people read the book and they want to discuss different aspects of it, I'm more than happy. I put a, I set up an email called where was skip at gmail.com. So if anybody wants to email me about the book, I'll be checking that and trying to respond to people as well too. So John Cater, Dr. John Cater with the most ridiculous understatement in the history of human language. This is a much better suspect than Vincent Peterson. <laughs> You think 
<laughs> well, you, you and I talk, and Eric and I had some great exchanges today. You love Eric. I love Eric. There's certain things we disagree with. But I think Eric's heart's in the right place. And I'm not here. 